Welcome to the Inside Scoop Live podcast, where indie authors get personal about their books, their writing, and their passions. I'm your host, Sherry Hoyt. Join me for some lively conversations with debut indie authors and seasoned veterans alike. It's a great place to find your next amazing read or even get inspired. So sit back and enjoy the show and let me know what you think. Hey, everyone. Thanks for joining the show. Today, I'm talking with Diane Romaine, author of The Trumpet Lesson. The Trumpet Lesson is Diane's debut novel, and it's a story that dives into the worlds of secrets, racial inequities, different cultures and sexual orientations, and coming to terms with the past. It's about embracing and accepting family, friends, and change, and learning to appreciate what matters most. I think The Trumpet Lesson is a fascinating story that brings all these elements together as one woman discovers how to let go and start living. Before we get started, here is the inside scoop about Diane. Diane Romaine grew up in Missouri and studied philosophy at the University of Missouri at Kansas City. After completing her Ph.D. in philosophy at UC Berkeley, she taught feminist ethics and philosophy of emotion at Sonoma State University and published Thinking Things Through, a critical thinking textbook. While in California, she practiced fiction writing techniques in a woman's writing group. Her current writing projects, set in Guanajuato, Mexico, include short stories and a second novel. Visit her at dianeromaine.com. Well, hi, Diane. Welcome to Inside Scoop Live. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Yeah, I've been really excited to talk to you. I loved your book, The Trumpet Lesson, phenomenal fiction debut. So to get started, can you tell us what is The Trumpet Lesson about? Well, it's about a woman who lives in Guanajuato. She's downtown with a friend of hers having dinner, and she listens to a song that she's heard many times before. It's called The Lost Child, El Nino Perdido in Spanish. It's a trumpet duet uh, played by mariachis, and one of the trumpet players is often off behind a tree somewhere, the lost child. Mm. At any rate, Callie's heard this song. Callie Quinn is the name of the woman. And she's heard this song many times before, but never quite like this. And she is very shy, but nonetheless, she's so taken with how the song is played that when the person comes out playing the lost child, and turns out to be a young woman, not dressed as a mariachi, she goes up to her and blurts out that she would like a trumpet lesson. This meeting this woman and other events that happened from then helped Callie come to terms with the loss of her own child, a biracial baby that she had relinquished for adoption over 30 years before. Mm. It's a powerful story. Uh, What was your inspiration behind it? Well, originally the first draft was very different. I started out with some stories that I had written years before, and I was trying to figure out how to link these stories together in a novel. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. it came to me that what I wanted was to be writing a novel about a writing group And one of the members had written these other stories, but she had a story in her own life that she had never talked with anybody about. So one morning I was just doing a free ride, and I came up with the idea that this woman had relinquished a baby for adoption, 
in the 60s when often this would happen where the parents would make the, the girls give the babies away and never have contact again or never know what happened to their baby. Mm-hmm. And when I got that idea, I literally started shaking. I just felt so moved by a woman in that position um, who had had to have that very profound loss early in life and then who also never felt comfortable speaking of it. So it affected me so strongly that I felt it was a story I needed to understand and tell. Mm-hmm. It's so interesting because the uh, social and cultural uh, norms were so different than they are now. Yeah. Well, you know, there were rumors, of course, when I was in high school of girls who were sent away. Mm-hmm. Um, so while I had never had that particular experience myself, I was aware of these things happening when I was growing up. Right, right. Yeah. So-and-so just disappears for a few months. and Right. Now, you live in the village your novel is set in. How long have you lived in Mexico, and what made you decide to make the move from the U.S.? Well, years ago, my companion, Sterling Bennett, and I decided to take a leave and live in Mexico for a year. And at that point, we came to the center of Mexico, and we lived in the state of Michoacan in a village that we made our home base. But during that time, we came many times to Guanajuato, where we now live. And we originally came because we loved languages. We had studied some Spanish. Sterling taught German. Mm. I taught philosophy, but I was always also interested in languages. So we had studied Spanish in Guatemala, and we decided we wanted to study more Spanish. So we were coming for the year to study Spanish. And at one point, I came over here to Guanajuato and studied for a month. And I just fell in love with Guanajuato. So we came to study Spanish, learn more about the culture, because we had many students of Mexican heritage and so on. And anyway, Guanajuato is an amazing town. It's a small city, a colonial town from the silver mining and gold mining era. The gold mine above town in Valenciana was the biggest producer of gold during the colonial period. So um, there's there are some beautiful, beautiful buildings in town from that mm. period. We love the people. One story that's one of my favorites of what the people are like here. Well, some of the people, you know, people are different, of course. But um, when we were constructing our house, um, we live on a footpath, really. It's a cobblestone footpath. You can't drive to our house. And you can't get a cement truck to our house. So they have these portable cement mixers. And there's a very steep kind of access uh, road uh, about a block or so from our house. And the workers were bringing this portable cement mixer down this steep incline and gravity being what it was and the weight of the cement mixer being what it was, it got away from them. Oh, no. Bounced off. Yeah, it bounced off somebody's stairway, tipped over and got a little dented. Anyway, they came to tell me about it. 
And they were laughing. They thought that was the funniest thing they had ever seen. <laughs> and, and also, telling a good story once is never enough. You've got to tell that story five, six times in a row right. before you really get the full enjoyment out of the story, which comes in handy if, you're, if Spanish is your second language, because maybe you'll get it all by the sixth time. But <laughs> anyway, that was something they also, I should say, it was about to rain, and they were pouring the cement floor of the second story. So they needed to get that cement mixer together, operating, and get that uh, cement poured before the rain poured. So anyway, uh, I was, of course, nervous, but they were just fine with it. They yeah. just battered it back together again. They got everything done before the rain. And anyway, so that was like one of many lessons to me who I tend to be, well, I still am if I'm in a confessionary mode, a bit of a perfectionist, which yeah. gets in the way of things. So Mexico has been good for me to try to um, see things in a different way. Yeah, yeah. Now, while you were talking, you mentioned um, some things that sounded familiar uh, to the setting in your story. Can you read a little bit from your novel just to give us kind of like a feel for the setting? Okay, well, I'll read a little bit from the very beginning of the novel, and then I'll talk a little bit about Guanajuato, if that's okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so this is how the novel begins. At the blast, Callie Quinn startled and looked up from her rooftop terrace to see a puff of smoke high above her head. She turned, still shaken, toward the houses that stair-stepped up the opposite side of the ravine, and she focused in on the lime green one. Had Armando seen her? She steadied herself. Soon, another celebratory firework rocket would take off from the chapel below, streak over her rooftop terrace, and explode above Guanajuato's historic center. She imagined that rocket catching the sheet she was hanging, lifting it and her along with it. How she would soar through the sky, exhilarating. She looked down to the floor of the canyon where pedestrian plazas nestled among soft-hued colonial buildings. Exhilarating, yes, but a long way to fall. Mm. So that's the introduction, and it, it tells a little bit about Guanajuato. Um, the sounds of Guanajuato are um, kind of overwhelming at times, and mm. one of the uh, overwhelming sounds are, they call them coetes. They are firework rockets, and they are loud. <laughs> if you don't know any better, you think you're in a war zone. They are really, really loud. Mm. And the churches on a celebration day will start them off early in the morning. Oh, wow. <laughs> so you're not, going, you're not going to sleep late on a Sunday morning when there's a church celebration in your neighborhood. <laughs> And then the other thing, which I can hear, but I think it's probably, I shut doors and windows 
to try to keep some of the sound out, but I can still hear them. Are the roosters in my neighborhood that crow all day long? Mm. I don't know why. But so you hear roosters. Sometimes um, you still, people will come in from the hillsides with bags of, of oak leaves for mulch for gardens, and they are carried by donkeys, sometimes by mules. Hmm. Um, so you'll hear the bray of donkeys from time to time, or see a little donkey train walking through the center, which is really beautiful and a lovely space. And lots of contemporary cars are going on the narrow streets as well. And then, you, like I say, you'll see the donkey train. So it's an yeah. interesting mixture. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So we have the rooftop dogs. Another aspect of Guanajuato, which here we're talking, I mentioned her rooftop terrace. The buildings, for the most part, have flat roofs with a slight angle for the rain to roll off uh, one way or another. Mm -hmm. But people, as a rule, that's where people do their laundry, and that's why I have Callie doing her laundry. You, you have your washing machine is up there. You hang your clothes up there on the roof, and they dry very quickly, as a rule here, because it's, um, we have very dry weather. We're in the center of Mexico, in the highlands, Almost 7,000 feet. So we have beautiful, beautiful weather. It's kind of spring-like all year round. It sounds amazing. You know, I can picture all of what's going on when you read that introductory paragraph. Um, you know, you could picture Callie up there hanging her clothes. And and then when you started talking about the cars on these old, narrow streets, it's, it's a funny mix, huh? <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is. You can't speed through this town. It is impossible because it's not just that the streets are narrow most of them there aren't very many streets there's only a couple of streets that go through the bottom of the canyon mm -hmm. but one of the major ones that goes through the bottom of the canyon has many tight curves in it also because it goes above a river a hidden river the river is down below and covered um, and so the river winds through the bottom of the canyon, and the street winds through the bottom of the canyon. <laughs> oh, well, it sounds amazing. It sounds like you're um, living your dream. Well, that's true. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Now, the trumpet obviously plays a big role in your story, and I'm curious about your research around playing the trumpet and preparing to write about it in your novel. Well, that's one of my favorite topics to talk about. <laughs> I really hadn't known very much about the trumpet, and I had never played the trumpet. I had played as a complete amateur. I took piano lessons for years, and I had played flute as a kid. And But I was trying to figure out how to have characters from the states in Guanajuato, and Guanajuato is the capital of the state of Guanajuato. Mm. So I came up with the trumpet because I had this character, Pamela, that I I really loved her, and she's a strong, outspoken woman, and I thought, wow, a trumpet would be, especially first trumpet, uh, would be a very good instrument for her. So I, I met a young trumpet player who was playing with the orchestra, Jason Pettit, at that particular time, and I asked him if I could interview him, and he said, sure. Then Sterling and I took off to go to the coast uh, surfing, and on the way, we stopped in Guadalajara, and I was walking around, and I passed an instrument store, and I saw these shiny brass 
instruments in the window, and the trumpets I saw there were a very reasonable amount. They were, you know, I think it was around $130. Uh, I don't remember how many pesos. Anyway, I went in. I called Jason. I said, is it worth buying? I thought, you know, it might be good just to have an instrument, see what it felt like, etc. He said, yeah, go ahead and buy it. It's probably a Chinese knockoff. It's not hard to make a trumpet that functions. Mm-hmm. Um, so he says, probably fine. So I bought it. Well, one thing led to another, and I fell in love with the trumpet. <laughs> I started practicing all the time. I was still taking piano lessons at the time and writing my novel. So I was writing, taking the piano lessons, playing the trumpet. I overdid it, as I tend to overdo things, and ended up with um, (laughs) tendonitis. So then I was just playing both the piano and the trumpet with the left hand for a while. But I ended up taking lots of lessons all over. Jason had me take lessons from people visiting the orchestra. Marcus Stokhausen was here for our wonderful festival, Cervantino. He was teaching um, master class at the university, and Jason got me to sit in and observe at the master class. And Marcus even let me play a little bit. Very, very kind man. I have found that in general, by the way, that although there's kind of stereotypes of trumpeters. Um, you, you have to have a lot of courage to be a trumpeter um, because everybody hears your mistakes. So yeah. the the trumpeters, there's a certain amount of uh, bravado maybe that you might expect along with that um, courage and vulnerability together. But what I have found is that the trumpeters, and I've taken from many of them, have been universally kind and supportive when teaching. Mm. Um, and it's really been wonderful. I took from Stanton Kessler, a jazz trumpeter in Kansas City. I sat in um, at the School of Music and Dance, the Conservatory of Music and Dance in Paris. Um, a trumpeter there, Antoine Curé, let me sit in and observe his master's level class and handpicked one of his students to give me private lessons um, oh, for a month. Yeah, so I, I played in a jazz club in um, in Florence, in Italy. That was great fun. I was terrible, of course. I was a beginner. It was my first time ever to play in a jam session. But everyone was so supportive, so it turned out to be a great experience. So um, a lot of risk-taking along the way, I might say. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, when you take a risk, Almost no matter as long as you live through it, it's, it's, it's exhilarating, you know, and you learn so much. So um, I, I just feel really lucky to have kind of stumbled into the trumpet yeah. and, and then to have learned so much that I could put in the novel all kinds of little things about what it feels like to play the instrument, and so on and so forth, that I would have probably not thought of if I hadn't played the instrument myself. Right, right. Like the the breathing and the the practicing that before you even put your hands on a trumpet and things like that. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Now, I want to talk about your characters. I absolutely fell in love with your characters and for different reasons for each character, you know, but they're such a quirky and diverse mix. And 
I was wondering, were any of your characters inspired by the people in your neighborhood? And then along with that, what was the level of difficulty involved in bringing such a diverse cast together? First, let me just say that the only character who's based on an actual being is Pavle, the dog. We had a street dog that we had temporarily and then my sister adopted in the U.S. that I modeled the Pavle on. His his name is Brindo. (laughs) The dog's name was, another friend had already named this street dog Brindle, and Pavle is the French version, like striped, like Brindle, a striped um, dog, and Pavle would be as a sort of striped something. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's the French version of Brindle. So he was modeled definitely. The other characters, Pamela, years ago, there was an extraordinary jazz singer who performed at the Teatro Juarez, which is a gorgeous originally an opera house, but now it's used for many types of performances. Anyway, I got to see her perform. She was, I just thought she was extraordinary, extraordinary voice, extraordinary manner, and she was also gorgeous and in wonderful shape, you know, incredible, like it looked like she worked out, just an extraordinary woman. Unfortunately, I I didn't keep track of her name or anything, Mm. but When I was thinking about Pamela, I thought of this woman and I thought of her as somebody that in terms of how Pamela looked and how she walked and so on and so forth, I used that woman as a model. Mm -hmm. Um, As far as Pamela's personality, no, I didn't pick any particular person. She just came to me uh, one time. I was writing and she came to me and she came to me as this very confident person and I liked that. I needed also somebody who was kind of confident because Callie is a very shy, retiring, uh, very, very introverted, um, quiet person and I kind of needed somebody to balance. Well, Armando is very extroverted, but he's kind of He's, he's kind of hysterical. So I kind of needed somebody who was more grounded. And Pamela is the more grounded person. Yeah. So Armando and Callie, I kind of think of as sort of, they're almost mirror opposites. I mean, they're both hysterical, but Callie's hysteria, her anxiousness is very contained. And Armando's is just all over the place. Um, <laughs> So, <laughs> yeah, that's that's a perfect description for Armando. He's all over the place. <laughs> yeah, but he's hilarious. I loved I loved him so much. <laughs> I'm I'm glad I'm glad you like him. Some people really do not like Armando. They find him very annoying. Oh, and yeah, and I happen to be. I love people who are sort of neurotic in a way, you know, people yeah. who have, who dance with anxiety. I, you know, I do that. I have done that a lot myself, sometimes in my 20s, in a very almost debilitating way. So I have a lot of experience, personal with anxiety and ways to cope with that and move on and take risks and so on and so forth. So it's something that fascinates me. I tend to love people, be drawn to people who have anxiety. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also mm-hmm. good to have somebody like Pamela around, who, you know, to give you um, a kind of a reality check now and then. too. Right. 
Right. And that's what I loved about it. The, the diversity of your characters. Love it. <laughs> you know? I'm glad. So The Trumpet Lesson is your first novel, but you've written short fiction and you've also written nonfiction. What did you have to do differently or what did you have to learn to do differently when switching between fiction and nonfiction? Well, I was teaching philosophy, as I said, and I, I wrote a textbook in philosophy and critical thinking, and I wrote some short articles in philosophy about different topics and gave lots of talks, and of course, I had my classes. Originally, I was interested in skepticism and perception when I wrote my PhD, but later, I wanted to do philosophy that had more to do with our everyday lives. How can we lead lives that are good lives in one way or another. Mm -hmm. uh, so I started teaching ethics. I taught philosophy of law. I taught social and political philosophy. And I got interested in philosophy and emotion because that put together my longtime interest in emotions and philosophy. And then I also always interested in interdisciplinary approaches. And so I would have people read some literature, some psychology, some sociology, even biology when we're talking about emotions and trying to understand them, anthropology and so on. Um, I was noticed that philosophers tended, analytic philosophers, which is the training that I had in analytic philosophy, tended to write about emotion as if they'd never had one. And I thought if I were to write about emotion, I didn't want to follow that uh, method. So I decided to take a fiction writing class to learn some fiction techniques. And that's how I really got started learning how to write fiction instead of philosophy right. or essay type writing. And then I actually began to incorporate storytelling into my talks and even to some degree into my textbook on critical thinking, which is about how to analyze arguments. And I put a chapter on emotion in my textbook hmm. because I think it's one thing to make decisions that are good decisions with good reasoning. Unfortunately, it's an entirely different thing to act on the decisions that we make. Right. And we really need to understand our emotions in order to be able to carry out our plans. So, uh, yeah, so I think all these things go together, uh, emotion, philosophy, or understanding emotion, philosophy, and writing fiction, obviously. Mm -hmm. So I took fiction writing class. I was in a writing group. That class morphed into a writing group that I was in for, uh, I think, 23 years while I was in California. Um, and yeah, and then I'm, I'm a researcher by nature. I mean, I just research everything. So did lots of research on the different, uh, because I have gay characters in my novel. I have African-American characters and so on. And I'm from a kind of working class family, small town, uh, German Norwegian heritage. So I read a whole lot when writing my novels to learn about other communities and uh, the lives of other people that I, many of them, of course, I knew firsthand, but to really get a broader understanding, I read a lot. So to get back to the writing fiction, I just saw the other day that I stopped counting at 30 writing books about writing fiction on my Kindle. And that doesn't even include all of the books I've got in my study 
And all of the searches I do online to get just one more idea about something to do. So, yeah, I put a lot of time and energy into trying to learn how to write. Yeah, I I get that about the the craft of writing books because I want to buy all of them. I just... (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And I have purchased several and, you know... (laughs) Then it's it's about getting around to reading them all, and that's you know that's where the problem lies <laughs> for me anyway. Well, for me, I mean, to get back to the perfectionist thing, you have to watch out. I think it's good if you don't read them all or don't read all of all of them. Pick a few maybe and focus, and then read bits with others. But you can spend a lot of time reading instead of just sitting down to write and just write that sloppy first draft. Mm-hmm. Uh, go right ahead. So I think that's. Um, really useful also is just right. Yeah, yeah, that's so true. Now, you are donating all the royalties from the trumpet lesson to nonprofits. Uh, I wonder if you want to talk about what area of nonprofits you are supporting and, and what influenced this decision. Yeah, I decided to pick a couple of nonprofits to donate royalties to. And one is the Lori Frink Career Grant for Young Brass players. And I picked that because Lori Frink was a loved teacher that I had had the opportunity to have several lessons with. Mm -hmm. And she was a a trumpet player. In Mexico, I picked Mujeres Aliadas, Women Together, which um, is an organization that trains midwives in the village in Michoacan, uh, Erongaricuero, where Sterling and I lived many years ago. Mm. And we got to know the family where who became involved in this organization. And actually, the person who was a little girl when we lived in that village is now the director of the organization. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, so they train nurse midwives, and they provide birthing center and and healthcare, and importantly for the story that I wrote for the novel, they provide sex education to adolescents also. And so these are some things that I mean a lot to me, the the sex education for adolescents, I think is very important to have healthy relationships. Mm -hmm. And then Music is very important to me, and honoring the trumpet especially because it was such a wonderful experience for me. And so Lori Frink and the grant that was set up to honor her, I thought was important. When I do uh, gatherings in the States, sometimes I donate money to people who are or the location of the gathering. So, for example, there's a women's or a community library, which is open to men and women, but it focuses on women's writing, called The Sitting Room in Katati, California. And when I gave a reading there, I made the donation to The Sitting Room. Mm-hmm. So I, I make donations to different places that are in some way related to themes or concerns in the novel. Oh, I love that. And it's really all about giving back. You get so much more from it personally. Well, yeah, exactly. I'm very lucky because I was a tenured professor in the California State University system, as was my love, Sterling Bennett. 
we have a nice retirement and so on and so forth. We live in Mexico where it's not expensive to live. Mm. So it's easy for me to be able to be helpful in some ways for others. So, you know, it just makes me feel good to be able to do that. Right. So what do you like to do when you're not writing? I like to dance. Uh, Some years ago, uh, Sterling and I started, um, well, we've always loved to dance. And we used to take danzón is a dance that originated in Cuba, but then came to Mexico years ago. And it's, it's a wonderful couple's dance. Um, and Sterling and I took classes in that and, and used to dance that a lot. And then, oh, I don't know, we got distracted by something. And then a few years ago, like four, three, four years ago, we started dancing Lindy Hop. And we had a couple of young and wonderful teachers here in Guanajuato, but they left to go to graduate school. And we took over the class. So as complete, what can I say, novices at Lindy Hop, um, we've been teaching Lindy Hop here in town for the last two years. Um, And sometimes we have one student. Sometimes we have 10 students. I mean, we never know. If people come through town or university students will pop in and pop out depending on their studies, you know. And we have a few students who have been with us the whole time. And right now what we're doing because of the flu, Mm -hmm. we're making little short videos to send to our, our WhatsApp Guanajuato Baile Swing group so they can still practice at home. So oh, we're, we, we love doing Yeah, it's fun. And other than that, I like to, I have a personal trainer. I really like to work out. I think that's very important. Now we're doing that on Skype. Mm-hmm. Um, usually I, I walk a lot up and down these hills. There are 203 stairs between our house and the center below. Uh, which is very close, but a lot of stairs and yeah. inclines. So I get a lot of exercise just moving around town. Now I'm just mostly moving around my house and garden, which is I'm lucky to have that much. Yeah, just going to the store, you get a workout <laughs> from the steps. That's right. So what's next? Is there another novel in your future? Yes, I started a couple of years ago another novel, which Right now I'm calling Sophia and Hope. It's a mother and daughter. The mother, Sophia, Hope's the daughter. And I've been interested in philosophy and, you know, for many, many years, interested in privilege, what I call relative privilege, that, uh, you know, in, in, in uh, most of us are not in, well, obviously, mathematically, most of us are not in the 1%. So we're not like mm-hmm. hyper-privileged in terms of finance, finances. But many of us have privileges of various sorts compared with other people. So how do we deal with that? How do we deal, those of us who have privilege, how do we deal emotionally with that? How do we see that? Do we think, well, we deserve what we have. You know, there's nothing to have feelings about except pride. Mm. Or do we feel kind of, oh, you know, uh, uncomfortable in some way and why and in what circumstances? How do people who have less privilege feel about that? I mean, are some people appear to be just like totally comfortable living a very, very simple life, mm-hmm. even with hardship. Others do not. And so I'm interested in the relationship, again, between emotion, behavior, and societal norms and expectations. These are some interests that I have. So these are some 
things that I'm exploring for the next novel. Okay. So right now you're in the research phase and beginning to write. Do you have an ETA of when you hope to have a draft or, or not at this point? What I'm actually trying for and a little goal that I have for myself is not to dwaddle some dwaddle. Is that, is that a word? Not to take so long, not to take so long to write the next novel and to make it fun. I mean, I like serious issues, Mm -hmm. but I also like humor. I think it's, uh, for me, it's important to have a a kind of a combination. Mm -hmm. So I'm trying to keep anxiety at a distance and tap into my playful fun side for getting a sloppy draft down. We'll see. That's my goal is to try to get the first draft done pretty fast. I've already done quite a lot of work on thinking about motivations and characters and stuff like that, incidents. And I've written a a few scenes and hoping to keep going. Okay. So stay tuned. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Diane, I really enjoyed talking with you today and, uh, but we need to wrap it up. So um, I have a final question I wanted to find out. Um, And that is, uh, based on your personal experience, what advice can you give to up-and-coming authors? One of the things that's been the most useful for me in writing is using writing prompts and doing free writes where you do no editing. You just keep writing and no matter what comes out. So in terms of writing, I think those are really, really important Diane, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a pleasure getting to talk with you. Well, thank you, Sherry. I really appreciate the time and energy that and the support that you have given to the trumpet lesson. It really means a lot to me. Thank you so much for joining me today for my interview with Diane Romaine, author of The Trumpet Lesson. You can learn more about Diane and her work by visiting her website through the links posted in the show notes below. And while you're here, be sure to check out a few of the other interviews on Inside Scoop Live. 